Well, good morning. Thank you, pickleball legend. If you're joining us for the first time, we appreciate that. I know sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. Uh, if you're joining us online, we appreciate you doing that. What did you guys think of that spin move by Nate? Is that an athletic guy or not? I mean, you should see him on the basketball court when he spins and he goes down the lane and he dunks behind him. It is some kind of move. But pickleball, I have taken up pickleball in the last six to eight months. And, you know, what I've really seen is the character of Nebraska people come out. They're really nice. Um, you just kind of sign up online, and, and I show up at these places. Can, sure, you can play. And a lot of times there's six or seven people, and well, I'll sit down. No, you can, you can play. You can jump in, and they have a rotation, and it's great to have you. And I remember one time I was down at Peterson Park, and they had three, and they needed one more, and they invited me to play. And I thought, yeah, I'm clearly going to be the weak link here. I'm, I'm just not. But, you know, they, they didn't. I was missing shots. They were hitting the ball past me. But no, nobody was critical. Generally speaking, Nebraska people are nice. We've been living here since 2002. And I, I would say Nebraska nice is, and there's exceptions, but mostly people are pretty nice. Do you know who, who wouldn't fit into Nebraska nice? Jesus Christ. He could be pretty offensive. He ain't apologizing. What is it? What is it that makes Jesus so offensive? That's what we want to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John 6, we're going to start in verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter, verse 71, wrestling with this question, what makes Jesus so offensive? What makes Jesus so offensive? If you haven't been with us, we've been in the Gospel of John, oh, four or five months and this is what we've discerned. John was somebody who spent uh, time with Jesus in public ministry, traveled with him three years. And John became convinced after seeing Jesus that he was the Son of God. He saw him do stuff that made me think, this is no ordinary human. He's born of God. And so he, he, he made a record of everything. And, and he didn't pull any punches. At the end of his gospel, he says, these things I've written... So that you might believe in the Son of God, and then believing in Him, you might have life. So, so, okay, there's nothing deceptive here. I was with this guy for three years. I became convinced, seeing all he did, and ultimately being certified dead and rising three days later, that he's the Son of God. And I'm writing that you might make the same discovery I did. We've compared John to a prosecuting attorney who is prosecuting, trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's going to do it a variety of ways, but particularly through seven signs, seven things that Jesus did to think, whoa, that's, that's no human being. Like turning water into wine. Like healing a nobleman's son. Like healing a guy who been paralyzed 38 years. Uh, last, year uh, last week, or last time we were in John, about three or four weeks ago, uh, he walked on the water. Disciples were afraid. He said, oh, do not be afraid, it is I. And then the last time we were in John, we saw a crowd gather around him, 5,000 men up to 20,000, and thought, uh-oh, we don't have any food. Uh-oh, what do we do? And so one of the disciples gathered five loaves and two fish, and Jesus said, I can make that work. And he fed up to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And we're coming the day after that. That's where we are in context. Um, after that happened, Jesus sent the disciples across the sea in a boat, and he went to pray, and he came walking across the water. 
And the crowd follows Jesus, but, but they saw the boat and he wasn't in there. And so in verses 22 to 25, 25 they want to know, hey, how'd you get to the other side? Well, Jesus doesn't answer that question. I want to pick it up in verse 26. Here's what he says to these people. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus said, you showed up because you got a free meal. But you know what? Uh, You'll get hungry again. You're really missing the point here. This isn't to do some temporary stuff to meet some temporary needs. These signs are pointing to a greater reality that I'm the Son of God. I can do stuff that no person can do. I'm the Son of God. And you, you get caught in the temporary. You had a meal. You know what? You're going to get hungry again. You're missing the point. Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food. Again, he's going to use food. He's going to speak metaphorically, which perishes, but for the food which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Look, 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 this food you had, I mean, you, got, you were hungry and you got filled. That's not going to last. You're working for that which is very temporal. Work for that which is eternal. And catch this, that God the Father has put his seal on me. I am his son, and in me, if you believe in me, you can have life that is everlasting and food that lasts forever. Well, these guys miss that. The crowd misses that. They pick up on the word work, work. You say work, work. Well, verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What what do I have to do? Don't we all want to be right with God, don't we? You, you get a job, I get a job, we get, we get a, a list of expectations. This is what you got to do. This is what we expect. This is the kind of sales we want. This is the number of people we want involved. So they're thinking, all right, that translates to God. What work must I do? Okay, you ready for the work of God? Because he's going to give it in verse 29. There's one work. Here is the work of God that you must do. Verse 29, here we go. There, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. You want to do the work of God? Is that what you want to do? That's what I want to do? Believe in Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's the work of God. Believe in Jesus. Well, they didn't want they want to hear. This belief stuff, they're not, they're not, they're not big on that. I got to do something I can do here. So in verse 30, they challenge Jesus. They say, hey, 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 hey. They said to him, what then did you do for a sign so they may see and believe you? You claim to be the Son of God. Uh, what, what sign do you do? What work do you perform? Uh, do you catch the absurdity of that? Because just yesterday, they were pro- part of a crowd, 20,000, as big as 20,000. We're out of food. There's no Uber Eats. There's no hy What are we going to do? Somebody scares up five loaves and two fish. And the, I mean, they saw a sign. Now they want another sign. Listen, we have a, a responsibility to answer people's intellectual questions, but this interaction reminds us that belief is a matter of the heart. And some people, you can't give them enough evidence. When I was in campus ministry, I'd, I'd be 
discussing with students. I said, stop, let me give you a hypothetical question here. I got video of Jesus coming from the tomb, and I got a notarized statement from God saying that Jesus is his son. Would you, would, then you submit yourself to Jesus as he reveals himself in the Bible? No, they wouldn't. I'm, well, I appreciate your honesty. I can't give you enough evidence then, can I? No, you can't. Jesus is giving them overwhelming evidence. They want one more sign. No, no, Jesus isn't going to play the game. Uh, verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, this is a big deal in Jewish history. Way back a thousand years ago, they were in slavery, 400 years. God comes to this guy named Moses, says, I want you to lead him out. Moses said, I don't know if I'm the guy. God says, you are. He works a series of 10 plagues, parts the Red Sea. It's, it's a big deal. And then they're on their way to the promised land. God releases them from Pharaoh, but they don't have any food. And they cry out, and God provides manna. And this is a big deal. Jesus said, here's the problem with your perspective on that verse 32. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. You guys' perspective is wrong. You're all wigged out about Moses, and Moses is a big deal. He's in the faith hall of fame. And the Deuteronomy says Israel's not known a prophet like Moses since his time. But what was significant about Moses? He trusted God. He was available to God to be a conduit. And Jesus said, don't get too set on Moses. Don't get too fixated on Moses. You need to be looking at God who provided the bread through Moses. Your perspective is wrong on this. Here's what Jesus says, verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, which gives life to the world. Oh, they say, verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. Okay. He said, you want this bread? Is that what you want? You want the bread that comes down out of heaven? Yep, that's what we want. He said, okay. Verse 35. I'm the bread of life. I'm what you're looking for. Why choose bread as a metaphor? Because it was a staple in a Middle Eastern diet. But here's what Jesus wants to clarify. He's not a provider of bread. Okay? He is the bread of life. And he's using that metaphor to try and get the people to say, you have to partake, you have to consume, you have to bring me in. And he's going to push the metaphor, talking about eating and drinking. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Please notice that hunger and thirst are used to set up our metaphors to help us understand I mean, what, it what it means to come to Jesus and what it means to believe in him. Jesus said, you need to take me in. But Jesus says, I say to you, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So Jesus comes on earth and, and he, he makes his case and he does these signs and, and there's people who don't believe. Does that mean God is out of control? Does that mean somehow God has lost control? People choose and, 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 and no. We're going to see in verses 37 through 40 the tension in salvation between the sovereignty of God, which is very much at work, and the free will of humanity. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That speaks of the sovereignty of God. Everyone that comes to Jesus, the Father gives him. But, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So that's anybody who comes. So there you got the free will. In one verse, this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, again, that speaks of the sovereignty of God, I lose nothing, 
but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that the elect, no, that's not what it says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up in the last day. That speaks of free will, a choice. So, Andy, you're saying both the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And you say, I don't get that. Pastor, can you explain? You know, you had three years in seminary. Can you explain that to me? No, I can't. I can tell you this. God's eternal. You and I are temporal. There's going to be stuff about God we just don't get. So freshman year, I go off to Texas A&M, and I'm going to be a chemical engineering major. And my dad tells me, hey, son, just so you know, calculus is the language of engineering. So you really need to get calculus. And so I'm in first semester of calculus. There's about 50 of us in there. And the prof says, how many uh, have had calculus before? And most of the hands go up. He says, let me put it another way. How many have not had calculus? I'm about one of five. I think, okay, I'm a little bit of a disadvantage here. And so I'm going to really have to lock in because this, this is the language of engineering. So kind of fundamental things you do in calculus are integrals and differentials. And I remember my junior and senior year, they would have three whiteboards and there would be integrals and differentials across the board as he's explained theories. And then he'd be done and he'd go back and, he, and he'd say, you guys got all this? And he'd wipe the board and he'd start again. So it's like, okay, I really need to understand this stuff. So we're about a month in, okay? Freshman year in calculus. And the guy says, here's an integral. And he draws a shape. He said, the shape really doesn't matter. And he says, we're going to divide it up into parts. And we're going to make those parts smaller and smaller. And we're going to make them infinitely small. And in the limit, we're going to sum them up. And that's an integral. And then he goes, given that definition, this is how we integrate. And he gives a function, 4x cued minus 2x over 2, I don't know, whatever. And and this is how we integrate. And I think, whoa, 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 whoa. I I still don't understand this over here. And dude, you have moved on. And you know what? In four years of engineering, I never understood that definition. That was the fall of 1978. I still don't get it. But I integrated, thinking the guy who f- figured out calculus, Sir Isaac Newton, he's just a lot smarter than I am. So I'm just going to take his word on this one. Okay, if that's true on a human level, how much more with God? Folks, there's going to be stuff we just don't get. And if you got more questions about the tension between God's sovereignty and, and uh, human free will... You talk to Blake Johnston after service. He'll, he'll straighten you right out on that because that's my best explanation. So, verse 41 says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he not say, I have come down out of heaven? Well, we know his mama and daddy. We were, we were at the hospital when he was born, or the stable when he was born. And this guy's saying he came down out of heaven? That's weird. That's delusional. What they don't understand is that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, but they seem to know more about Jesus than Jesus does himself. Verse 43, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm sovereign in salvation. I draw people. 
Here's God's drawing described in verse 45, his wooing. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is not pulling people against their will. Jesus reveals himself. And when you see Jesus for who he is, you can do nothing but come to him. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Look, I've seen God, Jesus said. I, I know, I've been in his presence. I can tell you about him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That is what the thrust of John's gospel is. That is the focus of Jesus' public ministry, to get us to believe that he is the Son of God, and in believing in him, we can have eternal life. One more time, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Said in verse 35, he's saying in verse 48, I'm the very sustenance of life. Look, you guys are all consumed with what happened years ago in the wilderness. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. You're consumed on that bread, but it was limited. They ate it and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, Jesus is going to push this metaphor, bread of life. Now he's going to talk about eating and drinking, flesh and blood. Why? He wants us to get the idea that we need to consume him. We need to take him in. Why would he introduce blood? I think because in taking in Jesus, we need to take in his violent death. That is the reason we can be right with God. We need to take it all. So he pushes the metaphor of him as the bread of life and our need to take him in. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said then, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you read a book that you really like. And I say, do you like that book? You say, yeah, I like it, man. I devoured it. I don't think you ate the book. I don't think you put it in the microwave. I don't think you put it in the oven. I think you're using that metaphorically to like, I really took that in. I think this is what Jesus is saying, man. You've got to take me in. Me and my person, me and my death. Uh, one more time, he repeats the metaphor. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me I li- and, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me for he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down of heaven, not as the fathers ate it and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, next week will be the second week of the month. And we typically celebrate communion. And you've been with them. I'll talk you through some things. And we gather around tables. But one of the things I'll say is, we do not believe this becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. We do not believe that there is a spiritual feeding, a nourishment that goes on. We believe this is a memorial. Well, pastor, based on this, why would you say that? Because it sure seems like eat my flesh and drink my blood. In seminary, one of the first courses you take, if not the first, is hermeneutics. That's accurately interpreting the Word of God. And there's all kinds of things you do to get the meaning of the Word of God right. Because if you interpret the wrong meaning, then the Word of God loses its power. 
Okay, do you know what the first rule of hermeneutics is? First rule? Context. Context. Every text has a context. What is the context here of verses 52 to 59? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is Jesus giving instruction on communion in these verses? No, he's not. Here's the context. He's done a miracle. He's fed 20,000 people. And he's five loaves and two fishes, and these people are geeked, and they, they want more. Jesus, can we get more? He said, you're not understanding. You're working for that which is temporary. That sign you saw yesterday is pointing you to a greater reality. You need to take me in. I'm the bread of life. You need to consume me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. What is that? You need to take in the fact that I'm going to die, and I died a violent death for you. Context says this is trying to get these people to understand what it means to believe. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three Gospels, uh, record Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Interestingly, John doesn't. It may tell us a little bit about connecting these two because John doesn't include it in this Gospel. And then Paul includes it in 1 Corinthians 11. And all of them will record Jesus as saying, this is my body. You need to know the word body and flesh that are used here are two separate words. Two different words. I don't think Jesus is connecting the two. Luke and 1 Corinthians record Jesus saying, do this for a spiritual feeding. No, that's not what it says. It says, do this in remembrance of me. So that's why we say, give direction, communion. This is a memorial. This is a somber time. We're remembering Jesus' body and Jesus' blood shed for us. We're recalling the Savior that died for us, but we don't see it as a spiritual thing. We don't see it transubstantiation, consubstantiation, where it becomes a literal body and blood of Jesus. We have some differences with different denominations, not looking to pick a fight, respectfully disagree, but I want you to know why we believe what we believe and why we say what we do. Verse 59 uh, gives context. It says, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus, I mean, they, they came because they marveled and they, and they, they want to get some more Jesus. And he says, you need to take me in. I mean, you really need to take me in. You need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. I mean, and What's the response? Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled to this, said to them, why does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending, referring to going to the cross, his resurrection of the dead, and his, ultimately his ascension to heaven, what if you see him ascending to where he is, was before? Listen, verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life, okay? Remember the flesh, eat my flesh, it says, the flesh profits nothing. Flesh was just a metaphor. It's these words. It's the word of God. It's the spirit of God bringing the word of God to life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you, 
that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from him from the Father. Again, asserting God's sovereignty in the process. As a result, this many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Whoa, Jesus has given offense. His crowd, his following is about to get smaller. So is he going to run after him? I don't, don't want to lose numbers. Don't want to lose people. Don't, don't want to give offense. Is that what Jesus does? Let's find out what Jesus does. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Do you want to join them? I'm not making you stay, but I'm not backing off on anything I said. You want life? You got to take me in. Eat my flesh. I mean, you got to devour me. So put the twelve disciples. These guys were supposed to be the one who would lead the church. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's a great question. Peter said a lot of things that weren't so great. That's a great question. Where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus didn't go running after people. Jesus didn't apologize, man. There was, why not? Well, there's one way for life, and that's believing in Him. But some people found that really offensive. So we ask this question. Remember, Jesus is not in Nebraska nice. What makes Jesus so offensive? Here's what I'd say. Jesus claimed that He alone is the source of life makes him offensive. Seriously, Jesus, you alone. Are, yeah, yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah, that is what he's saying. I don't know. When you heard that a long way, did that ever offend you? See, I went off to my college my freshman year, and uh, I'd grown up in a system that taught you worked your way to God, be a good person. And I got involved in a dorm Bible study. I'll save you the details of that. And man, they hone in on the gospel, this message. Got to believe in him. Got to believe in him. Got to believe in him. And, and this verse got me, really, really messed me up. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this phrase, not a result of works. I found that offensive. Because I hadn't, I mean, I had not killed any. I still haven't killed anybody. I haven't beaten anybody up. Not strong enough. That would be explained that. But I wasn't, I wasn't a bad person. And you're telling me I'm going to hell without Jesus? I concoct these scenarios. What about somebody who's a mass murderer and receives Jesus and a nice guy? And he does. Yeah, I just. So for six months, I had this battle in my mind. Then February that year, I started in August, February, two guys come to faith and they're getting baptized. I know, I got to get baptized. Yeah, I got baptized as an infant. I don't remember that. So the guy says, man, we need to talk again. And he lays it out. And finally, I just thought, I, I, need, to, I need to get in or get out on this thing. I either need to believe, I've seen enough, I get, the message is consistent enough, I'm not good enough, I need to believe in Jesus, or I just need to stop going to the Bible study. And that morning, I don't remember the, that, that Sunday morning, I thought, I'm in, I'm in. I got baptized that afternoon, February, it's pretty cold during College Station, Texas, but uh, I survived. You been offended? In your road to Jesus? Do you find it offensive? Jesus isn't apologizing. 
There's just one way to life. It's in Him. You know, one of the places this crowd got stuck was on Moses. Man, Moses, 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 Moses. And Moses almost became a surrogate God, almost kind of an idol for them. You know, we can do that. We can make idols out of good things. We can make idols out of good people. So my mom, my dad, my husband, my wife, my friend, they, they become our source of life. I need this a warning. Be careful. So I come to faith my freshman year. And this guy named Ron, is the, I mean, he was so, pay, I, I, I'll bet he explained the gospel to me a hundred times. So when I finally came to faith and got it, it was like, he's on a pedestal. And he says to me, Andy, you never take my word for it. You never take my word for it. You, everything I say, you check me out in the word of God. I ain't the one who gives you life, friend. I love you. I can point you to the one who gives you life. But I'm not the one who gives you life. Have you made a Moses out of somebody in your life? Somebody said there there's no spiritual children, no spiritual grandchildren. Your mama's faith or your daddy's faith or your friend's faith ain't going to do it. It's got to be you and your relationship with God. Finally, a last question. If we agree Jesus is offensive, has he offended you lately? Oh, no, 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 I'm good with Jesus. I mean, if he hasn't offended you lately, I've got to ask, why not? Because I don't think you're that different than I am. We're in process. And we're pretty consumed with self. We're not as consumed with self as we may have been, and we're growing, but still, we're, we're kind of, we think we're something, all that in a bag of chips. And, and Jesus is in the process of saying, no, you're not. And he's going to put issues, he's going to put fingers on things in your life, like the way you spend your time or your money or what you watch on TV, you shouldn't be watching that, or how much you hang out or what time. He's going to say, that needs to change. That needs to start. That needs to stop. Has Jesus offended you lately? Hope so. Hope so. Because in offending you and offending me, he's actually bringing us closer to the bread of life, to the social life. So I'm not a gun guy. But I want to concoct a scenario here where um, a person goes, let me, it could be me, who I don't know jack about guns. And I go to the gun range. And there's a range monitor there, apparently, who walks a thing, and he sees me or some newbie doing something wrong, pointing the gun the wrong way, loading it the wrong way. I mean, at which end does the bullet come out? They don't, they don't know. How should that monitor respond to the person who's loading the gun or pointing the gun wrong? I mean... I, Politics isn't, you know, I mean, trying to be nice isn't it. It's like, you need to stop. You need to point that thing down or whatever it is. He's not interested. His first priority ain't to be nice. It's like, you need to stop doing that right now. Why? Because a life or lives are on the line because you don't know what you're doing. 
That's how the range monitor. He should not be worried about giving offense. He should be worried about speaking truth so lives don't needlessly end. Okay? If that's true of a range monitor at a gun range, how much more in the game of life where eternity is at stake? Listen, Jesus' heart is that we would come to him but at least some of the time, that means he's going to be really, really offensive. Why is that? Because he's telling us there's no other place to find life but in him. He's offensive because he claims that he alone is the only place to find life. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that Jesus cared enough to be offensive. He just wasn't Nebraska nice. Um, Lord, that we'd see Jesus as the Son of God. Lord, that we wouldn't be hard-hearted and unwilling to look at the evidence that, that John has provided. Lord, that you'd lead us to embrace you and you alone as the source of life. You said your spirit gives life. It takes your word. Holy Spirit, would you do that? Would you take Jesus' word and bring it to life in our lives? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.